0: Russia's brutal war continues, and President Zelensky is asking for more assistance as the people of Ukraine attempt to exercise their right to defend themselves from an imperialist aggressor seeking to end their existence as an independent nation. The Biden administration's efforts to revive Barack Obama's fatally flawed deal with Iran's rulers in an even weaker form may now be close to completion. Once that happens, Iran's theocrats will be enriched. They will have more to spend on terrorism, on missile development, and proxy wars. Their path to a nuclear weapons capability will be clear, even if they abide by the agreement, which, based on past performance, seems highly unlikely. It's probable that as a provision of this agreement, President Biden will grant Russia's demands for substantial opportunities to evade sanctions. It's possible that China's rulers will take over Russia's role as a caretaker of Tehran's highly enriched uranium, which should not inspire confidence. It's likely that the three strongest revisionist and revanchist regimes, those ruling China, Russia, and Iran, will begin working even more closely to diminish the power and influence of the United States. One might call them an axis of authoritarians or more pointedly in saving a few syllables, an axis of tyranny. I'm Cliff May, and I'll be discussing all this and more with FDD Senior Fellow Ruel Mark Gerecht, a former specialist at the CIA's Directorate of Operations, and FDD Senior Fellow Benham Bentalablu. You'll be with us too, here on Foreign Policy.
1: We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken.
0: Okay. On Wednesday morning, Zelensky addressed uh, the U.S. Congress. And full disclosure, we're recording this not long after that speech for release Friday. So let me start with your thoughts and impressions of what he had to say and whether he had an impact. Benham, what, what did you what did you think when you watched it?
1: Sure. I mean, I, I thought it was a a pretty heartfelt appeal. You know, you saw the references he was making, reaching out directly to the electorate. The references, for instance, I think to nine eleven. Um, you know, th- this is somebody who is, uh, to put it politely, between a rock and a hard place. Uh, not, his country is not in NATO, uh, and at the same time, being uh, ravaged uh, on the other side uh, by Putin's Russia, this imperialist aggressor you mentioned. Um, I think ultimately, we knew where the speech was going to go. It's going to be a plea for more arms, more material support, more humanitarian aid. That's exactly where the speech went, and quickly. Uh, but the news today out of Washington, uh, as you know, full disclosure to the Wednesday pre-record, uh, is the U.S. provision of older Russian surface-to-air missile and air defense systems, so that you know now allegedly they can intercept cruise missiles, uh, you know, versus things on a lower tier, uh, but not the fighter request, or perhaps not yet.
0: Right, right. And Rail, what did you think?
2: I thought it was a powerful speech. I mean, I I, I think there... Certainly is now in Washington a desire to help uh, Zelensky, to help the Ukrainians, whether that translates down the road when things really get tough, uh, when the Russians start to, you know, shut off the Western borders, uh, when they start killing essentially setting up killing zones and make it much more difficult to get supplies in, whether the United States and the Europeans, you know, maintain the necessary backbone, I'm pretty confident the Poles and the Romanians will. I worry about the Americans. Uh, I think the Americans may be the weak link here. I think it's now pretty clear that the decision not to send the MiG-29s from the Polish Air Force uh, to Ukraine, uh, that uh, weak link was actually the White House. It wasn't the US Pentagon. Uh, So that Suggest to me that down the road, if you don't have the guts to do that and let the ukrainians decide whether they can use that those aircraft or not, that we may prejudge the situation and you can already hear sounds in Paris and Berlin that maybe you know the ukrainians need to compromise uh
0: so that doesn't bode well right i mean i I'm, I'm curious to know if you're reading a lot as I think we all are the reports on how the war is going um vary are inconsistent there are those who are very buoyed by the fact that the russian offensive uh, clearly did not go according to plan they thought that i think the russians thought they would take kyiv in about 3 days it it's a blitzkrieg operation uh the weather is going to be warming up soon all kinds of things that you know and the, and the ukrainians have really uh, been uh, uh, remarkable in terms of uh, how stalwart they've been in this fight and all that. On the other hand, they're all those who say, yeah, that's all great, but the Russians will grind them down over time. The Russians are bringing in troops from as far away as the Eastern Military District, the Pacific Fleet, they're pulling them out of Armenia. I mean, Putin does not want to lose. Um, anyhow, I'm just a couple of reflections on. Go ahead, Benham. on where you think this war is and where it's going. And and, and listen, it's very hard to predict these things. If you People didn't predict about, correctly about whether it was contradictory. Was Putin going in? Was he not? Was he only going to go into Donbass, only a land bridge? So there's only so much we can say. But I'm still curious as your thought.
1: Yeah, I I'd, I'd agree with that. You know, I, I do oscillate based on reading reporting every day. Uh, about how well this conflict is going for Putin versus how badly this conflict is going for Putin, knowing what we know about Russian intentions versus Russian capabilities, I think the desire is to you know secure some land and then make it a war of attrition so you get a favorable political outcome. You know Putin does seem to me to be the person who may not have the most clearly defined military objective but may have a clear political objective and could use military aims a la here to get those political objectives. And you know, by having the conflict grind on and on and on, and have it be basically, as you said, a, a slaughter zone or a kill zone, what he may not be able to militarily achieve, he might be able to grabbing a footnote from well politically achieve because everyone's talking about the Western coalition coming together, not just American sanctions, but EU sanctions, European sanctions, the Canadians, even the Swiss you know, my God, this is, a, this is a very broad, multilateral American coalition of financial pressure against Putin. But the question has always been, how long will that last? And the tougher Putin makes it, the greater the chances of cracks appearing. Conversely, the greater the chances of cracks appearing, America may deem its further support for the Ukrainian people as escalatory or more involvement. And that may lead the, the French or the Germans or the British Uh, and whoever else well mentioned, to begin to want to peel away from the sanctions regime and to begin to want to force a compromise. So I am actually more concerned about the political implications, what the the day-to-day means on the ground. I'm more concerned on the humanitarian level than the military. And for the longer term, I'm more concerned about how Putin can politically win and even militarily lose, because I still think that is possible.
0: Well, you can add to that, but I also want to bring this in. I I don't... uh... Hold it against Zelensky at all that he said. Look, uh, he kind of made a compromise already to to Putin and saying, "Look, we're not going into uh, we're not going into NATO." Now, uh, uh, every country should have the right to whatever foreign affiliations it has. It, it wants. I think that's a matter of freedom, and we should support that. On the other hand, he's not getting in. The, the reality was he was not getting into NATO. Yeah, the Ukraine French and Germans not, blocked that. The, the French and Germans blocked that absolutely. So it was not going to happen anyway which which is why it is totally fallacious for putin to say NATO was a threat to us. NATO and Ukraine was threatened. NATO wasn't threatening anybody. No one was afraid. Let's face it, of the German Wehrmacht uh, three months ago, and there's and they're not now. No one was afraid. NATO has never been an aggressive alliance, and it's been a weakening and declining alliance for a long time, because so many people, not least in America, said, "Hey, it's 2021. No one needs to fight. Diplomacy can ha- solves everything." So I don't blame him for holding that out. The problem is. That's not an. That's probably not enough for Putin because he knew that yeah. before. And one other point I want to make here: just it was a terrible mistake for the NATO to be essentially flirting with Ukraine for years if they didn't anticipate that they would consummate the relationship. You don't do that. You don't say maybe so, maybe not, maybe you're on a track. That is just stupid. Yeah, but me.
2: I, I mean, I give this. I mean, these things. Uh, uh, can always be a somewhat long dance. I mean, I do think that the, you know, the failure, and again, it was a uh, uh, European failure and American failure. Certainly the, the Germans and the French weren't helpful on the, on Georgia. Uh, and I think it was when it was clear that NATO wasn't going to extend
0: an umbrella to, to Georgia that Putin decided to move. Uh, and, and as people should understand, we're talking about Georgia 2008, Putin goes in carves off two provinces from Georgia, the world says, oh, too bad, but what are you going to do?
2: Yeah, I, I I, mean, the on so far as the Russian advance, um, I'd say two things. One, I think the Russians have learned that their initial plan, uh, you know, obviously wasn't a success and they've adjusted and they've gone back to something the Russians do reasonably well. And that is they bring up artillery and they have a lot of it. They're good with it. And they slowly blow things to rubble, and they're going to, I think, do that all the way across Ukraine. Uh,
0: and, well, I mean, here's the point. I, 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 yes, I think that's possible, and certainly that is exactly what uh, Putin did in in Grozny and Chechnya in the second Chechen war. It's what he did in Aleppo. I have to wonder, though, if he believes, and I think he does, that Kiev is the the birthplace of Russia. Is he really going to? Just raise that city to the ground, every church, every great building? Is he going to cheat his his fellow Russians as he sees them, the way he treated Chechens and Syrians? So, I don't know if you can blow means- up uh, Kharkiv, you can blow up
2: uh, Kiev. I,
0: I, don't, yeah, I, don't, I, I don't really
2: see that big a difference. And it certainly is a, if he believes that's necessary for victory,
0: uh, yeah. then I, I think he's fully capable of doing it. And let me just explain why you said that about Kharkiv and the reason Kharkiv is a city in the northwest of Ukraine. And it's one where I think Putin thought he'd be. He might be welcomed as a liberator. Why? Because that close to Russia, that far in the northwest, almost everybody, most people there are speaking Russian at home and and in the streets. So they might identify as Russians. And at one point, maybe they did, but now they do not. They identify as Ukrainians. They are patriotic. One might even say, a little risky, nationalist at this point. Go ahead, Ben. There we go. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> and i wouldn't know i said it <laughs> i would know one other thing i think which is a, an important change and that is you know initially the the russians tried to hide war dead uh mm-hmm. and now they are actually celebrating their war dead now that is probably a factor that there are too many dead for them to hide uh mm-hmm. but two it's it's their attempt to play to russian patriotism and you know I, it, and I I think it's fair to say that almost all the Russians who are in the uh, army in Ukraine, you know, are not the middle class elite uh, in Moscow, in St. Petersburg. Uh, and uh, I think we've come accustomed to those folks uh, and those folks may bugger out. Many of them have already left. Uh, and I think that Putin is fully prepared to lose that part of the elite uh to continue forward so you could have a dumber russia uh, but a more determined russia it's possible uh and i would just put that warning in there Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i'm afraid of that warning the the kind of more brutalist kind of actor russia on the world stage today just to to kind of add some further historical perspective what i was jotting down was all of the great iran analogies i see here i don't want to be a one-trick pony with just the iran stuff i swear but there are so many (laughs) Uh, Go you know, ahead. No, no. Th- three of the first five UN Security Council resolutions dealt with exactly this issue, but in the Soviet form, uh, you know, just like you mentioned, Cliff, in 2008 with the Georgia war and just like now with the, the Russian speaking regions in Donbass, the Soviets tried to do exactly this in Kurdistan and in Azerbaijan province of Iran, gambling on the fact of a different center to periphery relationship ethnically and linguistically, trying to carve out those places, install puppet governments Uh, The West was qualitatively different uh, in that fight. This was post-World War II America, nuclear bluffing, uh, a much more a different kind of central authority uh, inside Iran, a much more vigorous game of diplomacy played. But ultimately, the Russians left and the puppet governments collapsed. Um, I think the Russians have uh, learned a lot of those lessons, but continue to draw from the same playbook, hence the the play in, in, uh, in Georgia and hence the play in Ukraine here. Um, The other thing, just quickly about what Ruel said with the tech, um, I totally do think the Russians will rely more and more on this kind of artillery. But that's why some of these other systems that occasionally you see talked about matter so much, particularly uh, from non-American sources like these Turkish drones, these Bayraktar drones, uh, you know, really proved uh, their worth. uh, Buy drone stock.
2: Buy drone stock. (laughs) Ruel
0: is talking about commercial drone style now. We do not get we do not give, do not give uh, investor advice on this program. Uh, right, here, one more question before I change the subject a little bit Ruel and if you you may have to kill me if you tell me this it was for a long time we've been hearing that intelligence from the US to the Ukrainians of what they knew about strikes that were upcoming was being delayed. That to not provoke Putin, uh, the Ukrainians were not getting on time uh, intelligence from the U.S. as much as could be. Has that has that been fixed? Do you have any? I idea? don't
2: know. I mean, I think there are a lot of bureaucratic explanations for that, in addition to you know issues of volition. But uh, uh, I mean, you do the 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 various intelligence services of the armed forces and the CIA—they're very leery about giving you know the type of. Communication devices that can be reverse engineered against us. So yeah, but- uh, it takes time. I and I mean, obviously, the Ukrainians could really use a lot of targeting information from the
0: exactly. Doctors. They deserve that. And
2: yeah. uh, I'm sure. Sh- I I think they can technically work all that out. Uh, I don't know. You know where they are on that. Uh, I think in the end, like on so much else, almost everything else, it's a question of volition. So uh, I, I have to assume that uh, if we are going to consistently supply them uh, with weaponry, that we will follow that with intelligence, that the two are not dissimilar,
0: and that the courage it takes with one is the same courage with the other. All right. I mean, just to state a basic principle, a nation whose existence is being threatened ha- should be supported in exercising its right to self-defense. I mean, that just seems to me, for the United States and any free nation, that, that that's a basic principle. Am I wrong? No, no,
2: I, I agree with you. And I think it's even more poignant uh, with Ukraine because it is a European country. Uh, it is a European country which is striving to be a westernized country, and uh, So it appeals to everyone. And I don't mean to offend against uh, all the edicts of of PC behavior and rules, but, you know, it is much more difficult to look on that happening and say you're not somehow connected to it. Uh, It is they are part of what you might call the greater Western family. Uh, And I would also argue that if you're not willing to support and help the Ukrainians, I'm seriously doubtful that you're going to be willing to support the Taiwanese. Uh, the Ukrainians are a lot closer to us than anyone is in Asia. So those who those who think you're going to pivot, that it used to be we're going to pivot away from the Middle East and pivot to Europe and pivot to Asia. Now, because Europe's gotten hot, we want to pivot away from the Middle East. We want to pivot away from Europe. We want to pivot to Asia. I, I think those people who just want to pivot you know, they really just want to pivot to Canada. Uh, so they're, uh, they're, they're essentially—it's camouflage, I think, for an isolationist impulse.
0: I'm not sure Canada is an independent country. They—they they speak a language pretty close to ours. And I, 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 well, we—we we won't. I won't digress. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ben.
1: Just, just briefly on that, Cliff. Um, listen, I, I, you know, there's no fat on that sentence you said about a nation which is looking to support itself and what we can and should do to to support that. You know, I might change the word nation into state here, but also I would take it in a little bit different direction than than Cliff. Uh, sorry, than than, than Ruel, uh, because it. That we don't need to have, it's nice to have this congruence of identity, but then it leads to these odd comparisons. What is the identity comparison with the West, Taiwan? Should we support them? It, it, does it matter more that they look like us more or they're part of Western civilization more or that they have a political system uh, that is closer to ours versus another one? The biggest thing is you got to look at these areas where your strategy and your values are in concert, because so often in life they're actually competing, especially for you know great powers like the United States. And so we are lucky uh, that we get to do the right thing and get the strategic dividend in a place like you know Eurasia, you know with Ukraine, and in a, hopefully in a place like uh, you know East Asia vis-a-vis China and Taiwan. Uh, I think here doing the right thing. Uh, also ends up supporting this other narrative of great power competition. Uh, you know, you want to help the little guy here, not just because he may look like you or act like you, uh, but you want to help the little I, guy I, because it's also demur, a strategically I might demur a bit, thing. I might demur a bit about
2: this uh, notion of great power competition because it, it removes uh, ideas and principles from this conflict. It sort of suggests that we're in this conflict just because we're great powers. We're not. We're We're in conflict overwhelmingly because of uh, ideas. I mean, I think it's worthy to note that uh, Mr. Huntington, the late Mr. Professor Huntington, you know, predicted uh, in uh, his book of the clash of civilizations, which the phrase he stole from Bernard Lewis, uh, that he, he predicted that uh, the Ukrainians and the Russians wouldn't fight because they're essentially from the same uh, orthodox civilization that proved absolutely false uh that there are lots of things uh, more powerful than uh than than this the cultural oikumenē that uh Huntington saw as decisive ideas are i would argue are the decisive factor and that's what separates us from the russians it's what separates us from
1: the chinese that's why we have uh, competition well, it's not because we're great powers well, you know, I think great powers is the lar- being a great power is the largest, most important orienting factor. It's not the only factor, but it's the one that predisposes you to be able to put military muscle behind things like culture and things like ideas. Sans military muscle, there will be no competition. Well, yes, these I are, mean, that gets these, I mean, are, mean, these, are, I mean, these are yeah, that gets back to the effect. idea.
2: It's, uh, it's Bob Kagan's illusion, which I borrowed from that British gentleman, where you know, if you if you have a if you have a knife or you have a gun. The way you approach a wild animal is different if you are unarmed. So, uh,
0: absolutely. All right, I, I'm gonna. I want to move on to other. So I want to get other subjects in, but I'll just mention this: the the and, I, and I'm the concept of Western is not geographic; it is conceptual. Japan and Australia are Western nations. That well, that I mean, I Australia,
2: Australia is Japan. I don't know if I go quite that far. It's certainly has adapted a lot of Western values because the Americans didn't give them a choice. Uh, Japan. Yes. And whatever the the Japanese are sponge like. Uh, And uh, so they have absorbed a lot. I I don't know if I'd go so far as to call them a Western country, but uh, they certainly have westernized remarkably. Well, right, it depends we, we, what
1: we're talking about. If it's the country, you know, versus the culture versus the, the people versus their foreign policy, you know, you know, banking system, foreign policy, alliances, political system versus things like culture uh, or, or national culture. So you know, the, the word has to be understood. Oh, no, saying, I mean, same are they are, I, I, the
2: same? they are a democratic country.
1: Yeah, well, I mean that's that's what you should focus, on. and a, and
2: a
0: free country, right. and I think that's that's well. You don't have you right. don't
2: have a free authoritarian country.
0: You have you can have well. We've had this before. You can have an authoritarian country where there are many freedoms, and uh, while it's better to be democratic, nonetheless, the, uh, if, if you can have a, a country that's uh, that has some uh, that is somewhat authoritarian, but you have a free press, you have a free you have free, free speech. You
2: have, I don't other I don't, ways. Know, I don't know of any authoritarian country that has a free press.
1: Not a one. Or authoritarian countries where you have social freedoms, like pre-revolutionary Iran, totally not free press. You know, there was two major state papers and a lot of other, you know, minor newspapers and magazines. But you had at least social freedoms. And then now you've had a rollback of even...
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Authoritarian countries often uh, uh, can
0: liberalize social values. All right. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, or more precisely, back at Vienna's luxury Palais (laughs) 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 Coburg, it appears that nothing can stop Biden's envoys from pushing a weakened version of Obama's Iran deal toward a conclusion. And I want to emphasize this because it's not emphasized so much for the media. The Iranian delegation has refused even to sit at the same table as um, representatives of a despised, infidel regime known as the United States. This is a humiliation that the Biden administration decided to suck up and most of the media decided to ignore most of the time. They use phrases, euphemisms like, well, they're having indirect negotiations, which, by the way, I should should also point out, has allowed the Russian envoy, since we've decided, oh, Russia should be part of these negotiations, Israel shouldn't, UAE shouldn't, Saudis shouldn't, Bahrain shouldn't, but Russia should. So the Russian envoy, Mikhail Ulyanov, he becomes the the honest broker that we trust, even as we're sanctioning Russia for a war of imperialist aggression. This is you couldn't make this stuff up. Go ahead, Royal. Yeah, I mean,
2: uh, one I, I I just say that arms control is a is a drug uh, for the Western elite that just can't <laughs> yeah. let go of it, uh, even when it involves you know a, a anti-American theocracy extorting us. Uh, even when it involves a very short-term surcease to our nuclear anxiety, I mean, for those who have nuclear anxiety, I actually have gotten over it. I don't have nuclear anxiety anymore. So uh, you have so many other anxieties. I do. I still, do. Have right?
1: many others, yeah. but I've, got, How well I've got, learned I've got, to love the bomb. I've
2: got. I'm so we are we are willing to compromise ourselves over and over again because we don't want to think about the other possibility, the only remaining possibility, which is preventive war. Uh, so we won't go there. So, um, you know, and they're, they're stuck. They're absolutely stuck. And so they engage in very embarrassing behavior and certainly uh, having Russia invade Ukraine and then the Russians being party uh, to the deal, even though it substantively doesn't make a difference. It is aesthetically, ethically uh, very embarrassing, but uh, uh, the administration obviously. I, I, I mean, I think with, this isn't finished yet, but I think they're willing to, you know, simply swallow all that. Uh,
0: and, and but according, Russia also made a demand that they that Russia should get sanctions relief. This was a new demand made just about a, a week or so ago by the foreign minister Lavrov, uh, that Russia should have sanctions relief specifically when selling, oh, I don't know, weapons to Iran and maybe, oh, nuclear reactors, but for peaceful purposes only, trust them to Iran's rulers. And at first, it seemed like the Biden administration, okay, that's a bridge too far. We're not going to accept that. And now it looks like they're saying, uh, okay, if that's what you want, you can have it. What the heck?
1: Yeah, I, I am. I am very worried about that because uh, you've seen a 180 uh, in the press reporting on this. Admittedly, everyone is still going off of what the Russians have been saying, both in Moscow and and in Vienna. Uh, but the Russians have basically made it look like the U.S. caved, that the U.S. did provide some kind of guarantee that the trade that is. Permitted and the relationships that are enabled to be established by the JCPOA and America's other architecture of waived sanctions, other uh, under the auspices of the JCPOA, would not in this case apply to Russia. Now the Russians have literally used the Ukraine conflict to try to uh, establish a sanctions-free channel with the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism, who they claim. They are trying to restrain from developing nuclear weapons here. So we have to see what's going on. Uh, And then now they're trying to leverage this channel uh, in negotiations with Washington about something that Washington, per what Ruel was saying about the arms control addiction, cares very much about. And I, too, thought that this is something that we would fight uh, uphill on uh but again if we read the reporting it it looks like no not at all i don't know if a formal written guarantee has been given which would be very different and would be a very adverse practice uh, both to ourselves and as well as the other kind of sanctions regimes that we have around the world Um, but maybe something was said about things permitted under the jcpoa will not be sanctioned under xyz authority just to be clear the russians in the deal get three different kinds of dividends already this is you know three reasons why it's a bad idea Is this in one, your policy
0: paper is you're drawing from you uh, you, yes. you you and i think rich Goldberg and Fields wrote a policy paper that's getting a lot of traction in Congress evidently so it's one and i wanted you to kind of tick off you can't do the whole policy paper here but tick off a couple of highlights of it
1: Sure, well, it's it's a basically a, tr- a troika of forces, and it was a, a, at least a troika of authors. But we had a lot of good input from a lot of other folks: Matt, Rich, I, several other people. Um, and basically, one is that don't let Putin, which is in the process of midwifing a, a bad, even worse version of the 2015 nuclear deal, establish a sanctions-free channel with the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism, just to get insulation and to offset the rightly mounting costs he is facing due to the invasion of Ukraine. So don't let him do that. And in the paper, we kind of outline how Russia could leverage uh, these enhanced banking experiences to try to get around American sanctions, saying, well, this is a trade or this is a transaction or this is something that's permitted under the auspices of the Iran deal. So let me use Iran literally and figuratively with, with their junior partners here as a human shield against mounting western pressure just so i can get the the goodies just so i can get the dividends so that's the first leg the economic leg the second leg is the military leg which has already lapsed uh, the, the the 2015 nuclear deal had a five-year arms embargo. It used to be permanent in previous Security Council resolutions on Iran. Uh, the Russians didn't rush to sell Iran a bunch of stuff in the past, but they did sell Iran its most important, its most advanced foreign-procured air defense system, the S-300. That does make some military options against Iran somewhat more complex. The Russians may want to step up their sales of arms to Iran, especially if they're feeling the cost here. They may want to economically offset it through their new sanctions-free channel with military sales. The third leg, of course, and create more problems for us in the Middle East, by the way, by empowering the most revisionist actor there. And the third one is the nuclear one. Uh, You know, Russia is is a major civilian nuclear supplier around the world. It gets a lot of money uh, from uh, civilian uh, nuclear to nuclear relationships bilaterally that it has all around the world. Other countries do this too, like France, but France is not Russia. and France does not do the things that Russia does. CC invasion of Ukraine here, so uh, the Russians have had extensive experience working in and around Iran's nuclear program since the '90s. They took over that reactor in Bushehr. They're slated to build at least two other reactors for the Iranians: Bushehr two, Bushehr three. They're supposed to be providing the spent fuel and taking it away, uh, the fuel and, and taking away the spent fuel for the Bushehr reactor. And there's a host of things for the JCPOA that they would be doing uh, that would allow them greater access. And greater touch points to Iran's nuclear program, such as reconfiguring Fordo, working with them on the Tehran research reactor fueling. There's a lot of stuff here. And if you're dealing with Russia in a very, you're dealing with the Russia of 2022, which is very untrustworthy, would you trust them to do everything by the book with the Islamic Republic of Iran in 2022, 23, 25? I wouldn't.
0: So America's policy essentially is to weaken Putin and strengthen Putin at the same time. That's that's the strategy. I mean, I, right? I would know one thing. I mean, I think the uh, I'm sure
2: that uh, the Russians will figure out some way to drive a truck through any loophole uh, in the Iran deal. I you can be absolutely certain of that. But the principal problems with China. So I mean, what the if the Chinese decide to help the Russians, uh, that amount of aid and support uh, will dwarf. Anything that could possibly come through, uh, any type of exceptions that could carve out with Iran from the Iran nuclear deal. So, and we don't know yet. But if the if Z decides to go with Putin to hang with them, uh, I mean, they could they could essentially um, survive a lot of the sanctions without suffering nearly as much because they could simply exchange oil. Uh, For goods. They -hmm. they don't even have to use Chinese currency. They barter ratio. I'm sure the Chinese will make them discount substantially. The Chinese always end up screwing you. But the the effect
0: of that uh, could be substantial and give uh, Putin a lot more breathing room. All right, I want to move through, there's a lot I want to get to if we can in the time we have, so we'll try to move quickly. But I, we certainly have to take note of other developments that one might have thought would have stopped this deal. One a dozen missiles launched from Iranian territory into Kurdistan and exploding near the U.S. consulate, essentially saying, you better watch out for us. We can deter you. Um, And you would think that, but the U.S. government, oh.
2: The one one thing we know for certain about U.S.-Iranian relations is that no act of Iranian aggression or terrorism is going to stop uh, any form of uh, U.S. diplomatic behavior. We have We have watched this over and over again. It's been a bipartisan endeavor to ignore Iranian aggression.
0: Uh, and by the way, the other is death threats against Mike Pompeo, against John Bolton, against Brian Hook and others, including people at FDD. That's being ignored, too. There was a plot to kidnap an American in Brooklyn. That's been ignored, too. We never did anything. Consequences to come about the attempted uh, assassination plot in Georgetown well, against the I mean, go ambassador back go ba- a Very good Italian restaurant. A little expensive. Yeah, it's but not that good. <laughs>
2: hey, go, I mean, go back. I mean, go back in history. I mean, my my. Uh... My favorite president of my adult lifetime, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, I mean, they, you know, they blew up the Marine barracks. There was no question at the time of who was responsible. George Shultz uh, requested a military strikes against the Iranians. Caspar Weinberger uh, won the argument, never happened. And within two and under two years, we're trading arms for hostages. That's Ronald Reagan. OK, us. but learn from these
0: mistakes. And that's, I, I I, mean that's a term, mistake. But how long does it take to learn that you've made we a mistake? Don't. In we don't. In course. fact,
2: what's striking about this is the Biden administration actually is the first administration that isn't seeking Iranian moderates.
0: It's really quite striking. Well, but they're not. I mean, I don't think no. You might as well be uh, looking I, I for hands to I mean, that's, they're, they're, it's so obvious there are no moderates to look for anymore that you can pretend for a while, but once Raisi became president. Let me also mention, at least two members of the negotiating team left in recent months because they thought their colleagues, led by Rob Malley, were giving away too much. Now, when we're talking about Richard Nephew and uh, what's her name? Uh, Ariane about Tabadati. We're not talking about Hawks here, exactly. No, and no, left we're the, definitely not talking about hawk. <laughs> okay, and they leave the negotiations because no, that's that we cannot go that far. And again, that that, that said, okay, so go to this. What about Congress at this point? Um, Republic as I understand it, you tell me Republicans oppose this deal pretty much across the lines. We know some Democrats do, but that doesn't necessarily mean they'll act, and it's not clear not clear, whether INARA, which is what is the Iran Nuclear Agreement Nuclear Agreement Review Act, right, which should give Congress an ability at least to pass judgment publicly. Again, this will not be, this should be a treaty. This is usually important. It will not be submitted as a treaty, at least if you would think it would go under the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, INARA, so that Congress would at least have some say about it. But it is not clear that that's going to happen because Biden is going to say, no, no, guys, this is just the old JCPOA. You've already, you already gave your views on it. We don't need to ask Congress its opinion. We're just going to. And there, that fight is taking place, as I understand it. I know we've done memos from members of Congress who want to say, no, you under Inara, you absolutely have to give Congress at least a say you cannot just cut us out of the loop entirely and do this on your own. So just a few a few comments upon about, about that. Again, we have many questions I want to get through, but and about and about Congress's
1: role or lack of role here. Go ahead. Listen, the, one of the, the greatest sins of the JCPOA is, is, is not even really the lack of missiles or the, the sunset clauses or the poor inspections, or the really the greatest sin of the JCPOA, not even giving domestic enrichment, in my view. The greatest sin of the JCPOA here in Washington is what it did to Multiple communities of concern here uh, over the Iran policy issue, which used to be on the hill a nonpartisan or a bipartisan issue. These sanctions resolutions were going out in 99.0, 100.0. Now Iran is, by definition, a partisan policy problem. Uh, gone are those days where you will have ninety nine one 100.0. hundred zero. That is what the JCPOA, the rancorous JCPOA debate, did in twenty fifteen to this issue, and 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 the days of the you know pure consensus on, on U.S. unilateral sanctions against the Islamic Republic. I fear I'm, I'm a pessimist, but I fear are are gone and not going to be easy to come back to, and. The Biden administration actually understands this, which is why it's so cleverly messaging on this more more for less deal. Basically, we know what's been reported out of Iran last year and what's being reported here in D.C. this year, that we are going to be offering not just the sanctions relief per the JCPOA text, we're going to be offering Trump-era non-nuclear sanctions as well. And the Islamic Republic, it's not confirmed yet. But the Islamic Republic is not amending even the timelines of this fatally flawed deal. So we're paying more for less time on the clock. You know, in 2015, we kicked the can down the road for a decade. Now we kicking the can down the road just for a few years at max. And this is the most charitable definition here. Uh, so we are getting less. So by definition, this is a new deal and you would have to submit this. But by still calling it the JCPOA, the administration is just trying to say exactly what you said, Cliff, which is see no evil, hear no evil. You've already vented about this in 2015. We're going back into this just like the Paris Climate Accord. On to the next subject. We're capping the most urgent threat. Got to pivot, a la Ruel, to Russia and perhaps China. So, Ruel, uh, this is a good question for you.
0: Um, the negotiators keep saying, I think Wendy Sherman said this on a, one of the Sunday shows, Look, guys, we need we need this deal because we all agree, don't we, that we gotta stop Tehran, Iran's rulers, from getting nuclear weapons. Uh, here's here's a quote from Wendy Sherman. I have if Iran has a nuclear weapon, its ability to project power into the Middle East and to deter us, our allies and partners. Is enormous. So, President Biden believes very strongly, as does Secretary Blinken, as do I, that we need to make sure that Iran never obtains a nuclear weapon. And then we also need to deal with their malign behavior in the region. So, does she really believe that this agreement stops Iran from getting a nuclear weapon? Or is she lying because that's what she's paid to do? Let me put it rather. I don't know. I
2: mean, a long time ago, I decided that I didn't want to pry into the mind and heart of Wendy. Uh, so <laughs> I don't, uh, I, I, I don't know what's lurking inside there. Um, you know, I think it, it is revealing. You're an intelligence officer. You must no, 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 have intelligence no, no. I, I, on what there's they're some people I just don't want to go there that, uh, and I, you know, I do think that, uh, she was very revealing in her comments that, I mean, I think she's deterred anyway. I mean, realistically, if Iran gets a nuke, it shouldn't deter the United States, uh, And, you know, we engaged in a lot of hot warfare against the Soviet Union, particularly in the third world Uh, throughout the Cold War. Some people would even argue Peter Rodman did that. We defeated the Soviet Union in the third world. Uh, So, I mean, that that shouldn't deter us. Now, whether in fact it does, that's that's a that's a separate issue. Uh, I mean, I would go back to what, what Benham was talking about. I'm not again, I've gotten over my nuclear anxiety. Uh, That what I would worry about uh, most is that after the Iranians have the nuke, uh, because this deal isn't going to stop it, the only thing left that could possibly convulse their nuclear ambitions would be a military strike. uh, Is uh, have we then completely also lost any type of consensus of developing however feeble a containment policy we might put up? And I, I do fear that that, too, has gone down the drain that uh this has become a sen- simply a litmus test uh amongst a substantial number of, of democrats uh and, uh and and republicans and even though i also think there are republicans who will dissent and actually side on the on the democratic side too uh, of those in favor of essentially kissing it off so uh you know that we we have lost and i mean if you were to go back to my former employer We can argue about, you know, whether any covert action project, how successful it might have been or would be or has been. But essentially, anything done by the agency uh, becomes null and void anything long term if you don't have bipartisan consensus, because most programs, not all, but most programs are dependent upon a certain level of secrecy. So if you blow it out of the water with leaks, then it's over. And, uh, you know, the truth is uh, intel committees are no different from any other committees now, and they will leak
1: on you. No rule. Zoe, uh, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I'm going to ask you one of the, our enemies, our adversaries, certainly this is the case with Putin, can engage in nuclear blackmail, North Korea as well, because they can say, you know, we're, we're crazy enough that we'll launch nuclear weapons. And, and we can't threaten, well, we'll do the same because nobody Believes that. Now that raises the question of why we don't have better defensive abilities than we do. Uh, I saw Bill Bennett talking about this the other day. He was in the Reagan administration and he said, I made an interesting point. He said, look, should we have a no-fly zone over Ukraine? We should, but we can't. He said, President Reagan wanted Star Wars. He wanted an umbrella that would prevent nuclear, prevent ICBMs from successfully reaching their targets. He says that was ridiculed. And then after Reagan Democrats defunded missile defense. Obama pretty much cut it out entirely. Republicans didn't push hard. But if we had a multi layered anti missile defense system, we would certainly have a stronger de- deterrent capability because our adversaries would think ah, if we launch against them and it doesn't succeed because they knock it out of the sky, then we're in trouble. They come back and they kick our butts. No? Well, certainly missile defense is uh, uh, highly
2: valuable against any third, you know, what we used to call third world countries uh, that are nuclearized, because their nuclear arsenals aren't going to be that substantial. So against someone like Korea, a country like uh, North Korea, it's highly valuable to have uh, an effective uh, missile defense system. So the same would will be true with Iran when it puts uh, nuclear warheads on its ballistic missiles. Uh, you know, against the so against Russia. It's probably irrelevant because the amount of th- missiles they can throw at you is going to simply overwhelm They have more than we do. Yeah. And realistically, it's going to overwhelm any type of defensive shield you could put up unless, you know, our our, our defenses become a lot, lot better than they are. And there's, you're right. I mean, the uh, the level of monies that we have uh, devoted to uh, missile defense have been pretty
1: pathetic.
0: Go ahead, uh, Benham, if you two, want to two, get, make
1: two points. Yeah. On I'm
0: going to do through a lightning round of the questions okay. I want to get at least a quick answer to. Go ahead.
1: Two, two points on that. Yes, just for the what we have now in terms of defending the U.S. homeland, it's that ground course mid, uh, mid-base missile defense system that's designed to uh, prevent against or block the North Korean or potentially Iranian ICBM capability. We are still vulnerable to what Ruel was mentioning, which is that the Russian or potentially Chinese uh, ICBM capability, so it, it factors in exactly what Roel was saying, which is the lower tier ICBM threats. That's what's technically supposed to be uh, protecting the homeland. Something that can help your adversary before they launch an ICBM or a terrorist attack or anything else uh, is having a good impression of your resolve. Which is why when you mentioned those missile launches during the uh, during the negotiations at Erbil Cliff. Uh, you know, Iran did that because they have a, a pretty poor impression uh, of American resolve. And there is that long bipartisan track record that well mentioned. And what I was pulling up here, and this can help with deterrence, because deterrence is not static, it's iterative, it's kinetic. Every time you act, your adversary gets a new impression, either updates and it creates a sticky impression or it diminishes and it moves it downward. So you always have to be cognizant of how your words and your, and your behavior can help or hurt that deterrent posture you're trying to signal for your adversary. And this is from Ruel's former employer. And who knows, maybe Ruel even wrote this back in the day. This is from 1987. I've never served in the government, but I, I do have an archival historical bent. So I found this memo. And it's, it's, about it's, terrorism. It's, it's,
2: it's funny that you refer to 1987 as an archival a uh, part of an archival instinct. It's just Cliff and I would find that amusing. 1987. But go ahead. Well, you know, anything
1: that is put into an archive is archival. (laughs) (laughs) So even yesterday's (laughs) newspaper. But but the line is, and it applies to terrorism, but it's everything. Uh, Terrorism is an important instrument of Iranian foreign policy. Tehran has never been made to pay a significant price for the use of terrorist tactics as a political weapon, a factor that reinforces its willingness to use them. You sub out terrorism with any kind of escalation by any one of our adversaries, state and non-state. And the not the, the consistent image we project of not willing to punish those smaller things adds up like a mosaic in the aggregate of a weak image. So regardless of our deterrent capabilities, if we have the best homeland missile defense or not, if we haven't signaled that we're going to use it or we have the commensurate resolve to use it or meet them, It does us very little good because the enemy will try again and again and again, and they'll grow bolder, just like the Iranians are growing bolder now.
0: You know, Brad Bowman says this very well, that deterrence is the result of two factors. One is capabilities, the other is perception of will. You have to have both at all times. Well, you lose either one, and there's no deterrence. We can talk about, oh, we'll deter, we'll deter. We don't, unless we have those two things. All right, I'm going to do just two more questions quickly. One I mentioned in my introduction, and I've written about this in in some columns, the way in which the rulers, and I say the rulers because not the people, the rulers of Iran, Russia, and China are forming an axis. I said an axis of authoritarians or an axis of of tyrants. And we see, I I think the likelihood is that this continues to come together. Um, I don't know, maybe you do, whether China is going to provide military assistance to Russia. Uh, against Ukraine, uh, Russia may need some military assistance if this drags on for a while. But we, but we, but conceptually and strategically, I'm not sure people in this administration certainly are seeing Iran, Russia, China as an axis we have to uh, worry about and address. There, uh, and you certainly don't see that when you have again ambassador yanov in vienna as our partner uh and, and not understanding that he's going to benefit russia putin he's going to benefit iran and he's going to diminish the united states that's his goal that's his job
2: yeah i i don't know i mean i i think the administration is obviously going through an evolution here but uh I don't know whether you know they've connected all the dots or they think there are sufficient exceptions in this. Uh, I mean, I think they they are aware that an axis is developing, but that I, I think they are uncertain of its potency. Uh, and you know I we don't know yet. I mean uh, China is the big factor here. I actually worry more about Chinese financial aid to Russia than I do uh, the military aid just because, I mean, the Russian military industrial complex is pretty bloody big uh, and it will be telling if they can't produce enough planes, helicopters and tanks uh, to, you know, fulfill the needs of destroying Ukraine. I suspect they will be able to do that. But the problems will be on the financial side. And that's where the Chinese can have enormous input. Uh you know, it, we'll, we'll have to, the Chinese are the wild card here, and I, I don't know how that's going to play out if, if uh, I would expect authoritarians to hang together uh, until it becomes incredibly painful for them to maintain that alliance. So I could see uh, uh, the Chinese giving up on it, Xi giving up on it, if uh, he thinks it's it's simply a lost cause. Uh, and then he'll try to do the best that's possible in an unpleasant situation. Until that time, I would expect them to hang together. And obviously, we should we should treat them uh, as, you know, as an operative alliance. That is, they're more likely to work together than
0: they are to work against each other. Benham, final thoughts for this broadcast or narrowcast or whatever it is we're doing here.
1: Sure. I, I just want to echo that point, because that's where the trend lines are actually headed, not just for 2023, but but really for the next half decade to maybe two decades out, is that the area of convergence between those three countries, Russia, China, Iran, and you might as well throw North Korea in there, given their, yep. their latest missile test. Yep. You know, they, it's, the, it's the 12th, at least the 12th missile test of this year. They're resuming long range strike uh, systems. Don't think Pyongyang will sit on the back burner forever. And you They're notice the chinese
2: the, the Chinese are not
0: choking North Korea. No, they're oh, no, junior partner in the Axis, I sure. would say right. a junior partner, as is Venezuela. And we go to Venezuela yeah. hat in hand and say, hey, can we give you some money and maybe you'll give us a little more oil because we don't want to pump our own. You know.
1: Yeah, as if we didn't recognize the Juan Guaido government just a few years ago, and now we're doing a 180. And this is what the I wouldn't authoritarians... want to be Juan Guaido today, by the way. I, I would <laughs> no, not be without... a happy camper. This is what the authoritarians love. When when the invasion of of uh, Ukraine happened, all the ultra-hardline press in Iran said. Basically, a version of that Soleimani line, which is we're not like the Americans. We don't abandon our friends. Yeah. The headline across that most of these yeah. hardline papers was NATO emptied the back of Ukraine. It basically talked about the flirtation game trying to change their country. And then when push comes to shove, they did not stand with them. So this is the, their message. Now, Russia, China and Iran all want to do some of the same things, not all the same things, which is, you know, they want to rise in the region. They want to revise the balance of power in their region. They want to kick uh, the U.S. out of their respective regions, and they want to shrink American power. And they'll work together tactically, if not strategically, to achieve that. And my big fear is those that circle of convergence will grow uh, over time, and we may miss it, because we'll take a siloed approach to this competition. I think it's
2: fair to say with the Islamic Republic that its allies can engage in the most atrocious anti-Islamic behavior. Uh, oh, for sure. And uh, which the Russians, you know, usually do. Uh, I mean, the Russians have killed more Muslims than any other Westerners. I know Westerners, Europeans. I mean, they have the without a doubt, the, lo- the biggest, the longest track record
1: when it comes to killing Muslims. Uh, but and the genocide in China now, you know, the Islamic it, is it, not it, it,
2: as long as as long right. as the Supreme Leader and the ruling elite can hear that anti-American music. The uh, and then the anti-Western music, it just rings the bell. And so that's how they pivot that's how they define uh, their alliances
0: and uh, I don't expect it, I don't expect that to change at all. You surely wouldn't want to be a Uyghur which in Xinjiang which is also known as East Turkestan uh, waiting for your Muslim brothers in Tehran to save you. Well
2: are, well one most of the most I, I'm not I, the overwhelming
0: uh, number of the Uyghurs are uh,
2: uh, sunnis or sufis so they uh, they they're, they're doubly damned.
0: <laughs> all right all we have time for today but i'm sure we'll get back together i hope we will very soon thank you Benham. thank you ruel My pleasure. thanks to all of thank you, you so as much. well thank you and all of you who have been listening with us um we want to hear from you give us suggestions give us criticism give us praise subscribe for now i'm cliff may thanks for being with us here today on foreign policy Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to Foreign at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others, and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening foreign policy.